Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. You guys have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do. Will you open up? We're going to continue our series, Spiritual Grit. We're in the book of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11 this morning. And I am excited. I know I say that every week, and and there's so much truth to that because I get to preach God's Word every single week. We love God's Word here at New Heights Church so much that we do verse-by-verse teaching. But today I feel something in my spirit. This is a message for this church in this new season. We are going to New Heights. How many of you guys know we, when we changed the name from Tri-County Assembly of God Church to New Heights, number one, we, we didn't leave the Assemblies of God. We are an Assemblies of God church. We adhere to the 16 fundamental truths. We love the Assemblies of God. Come on. There you go. We never left the Assemblies of God. We did this not to be trendy, we did it because we believed it was prophetic, that God was speaking to us as a leadership team as, and as a board of the church and moving us into this new season. And I'll tell you, the coolest thing that I've been able to do over the last two years is read about the history of this church. This church has an incredible history. This is a legacy church. We've done incredible things for the kingdom of God, and we're going to continue to do incredible things. One of the things that I was, well, to be honest, was encouraged by as I read the history of the church is that it doesn't all just fall on the leader. And that's encouraging for the pastor to know. You guys have had nothing but incredible leaders in your 60-year history. Pastor Hugh and Pastor Brad, and now you're stuck with me. And what's amazing, though, is it wasn't just the leadership team. It was the people who made this church. It was the faith that sat in these chairs and in the pews. You guys have done incredible things, and we're about to do incredible things. God is taking us to new heights. And I believe this message, as I was preparing this week, God really just kept speaking to me. And I'm going to get all Pentecostal on you. This is God's word for this church in this new season. Amen. So have you guys ever, if, you, if you're a mom and dad or if you work with kids, you've probably heard the game, what would you bring if you were stuck on an island and you could only bring three things? You ever played that game? Now, before Liz and I were pastors, we were missionaries, which meant we traveled in our vehicle all over the United States of America. We've been to 47 states. You see our, our red van that we drive, we call that Big Red, and we took Big Red all over America. We have so many memories, and we've played so many games. The kids love that one. That's their favorite. What would you bring if you had, you could only bring three things, and you were going to be stuck on an island? 
Well, the other day, they were playing this game with some of their cousins, and I, I jumped in, except it wasn't what would you bring if you were going to be stuck on an island. It was this. If you had two minutes to grab whatever you could from your house, what would you grab? Well, I got, I got into this one because it was kind of fun, and Liz was sitting in the passenger seat, and Allie says, Dad, what would you bring if you had three minutes or two minutes? She said, Go. And I just started listing everything off. I'd go get my, my uh, rifle. I'd go get my shotgun. Uh, I don't have my, my buck mount yet, but as soon as I get that, that's the first thing I would grab off the wall. And before I could finish saying all these things, I could feel my wife just staring at me. And it hit me. She doesn't like my answer. And so I turned to her and I just said, I'm just teasing. You know, I'm just joking. And she goes, you would bring you had two minutes, Justin, to go into your house. You would go in and get your buck. That's what you would grab. And I said, oh, I'm just playing with the kids. I mean, they know I'd go in and get family photos. <laughs> I would get all those things. Liz, you, you know I'm just playing. She goes, well, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And I thought, great. But, but you know, priorities, Right. What would you grab? You had two minutes to run into your house and grab what was important to you, okay? A short moment of time to run into your home and grab whatever it is of most importance. You should have seen the face of my wife when I told her what I would grab. But I like that game because you're trying to create this sense of urgency that you only have a few moments. Of course, I wouldn't grab my buckhead, and she's not listening to the sermon. She's downstairs helping in the nursery, but she will watch later. And Liz, you know I would grab the kids, the family, eh, not the family pet. I would grab the photos. I'd grab all the important papers. You know, I'd grab all the things that were important. The other things, not as important. There's, there has to be a sense of urgency and a sense of priority, Okay. Something has to be done. It has to be done quickly, and you have to prioritize. Peter is saying the same thing is true for believers in our text today. We live in this in urgent times, but we're not urgent, and we need to make priorities of what's most important in life for the time that we have remaining. And I'm here today to tell you one sure fact. Either Jesus is coming back or you're going to die. I just received a text message this morning that one of my childhood friends passed away, 33 years old. 33 years old. You are not promised tomorrow. So, now, Peter was writing to a group of people, we, we're going to see this in verse 7, who were living in a time where the end of all things is at hand. Jesus is coming back. I'm going to tell you that. Let me just start out with that. Jesus is going to come back. He said he would. He's going to come back. But 2,000 years are done, so the end of all things is definitely more at hand than it was 2,000 years ago. I'm going to get into this in a little bit. The word end means culmination. If you're looking at verse 7, it means culmination. He's saying the culmination of all things is at hand. God's culmination of his plans, his purposes, his prophetic calendars. The theologians would call that the mega narrative of God's overarching purpose and plan for all things. That's going to come to an end. It's, it's culminate. It's going to culminate here pretty soon. Now, we've, we've already experienced the first coming of Jesus. 
which, by the way, that was the beginning of the end of all things. And the second coming, which Scripture looks forward to, is the culmination of time. We are living in the end of time, where, where the end of all things or the culmination of all things will happen. And in light of that, Peter's saying, in light of that, you're supposed to live a certain way. He's talking about a sense of urgency and a sense of priority. Have you guys ever been in a grocery store where they come on the intercom and they announce, hey, the store's closing in five minutes. Uh, we just want you to know that. And all of a sudden, you've got this sense of urgency. You've got to go get whatever you had to get. About eight years ago, I was going on a buck hunt, a special buck hunt in Missouri. I'm talking about hunting. It's the fall's coming. I'm getting excited. Sorry. So Liz and I had to go to the grocery store, and we were in a, a smaller town. It wasn't like a Walmart, so we didn't know if they were open 24-7. But I had procrastinated, waited till the last minute to go get all the things I needed. We were hunting on a special property. It was a mossy oak property, and they were being very kind, and they were letting me come on for free because this, this, the owner of this land was a believer. He wanted to bless a missionary who had been serving overseas, doesn't get the chance to hunt. And he said, I'm going to let you hunt on the property. But you just got to wait until everybody who's paid gets, gets a deer. Okay, I can do that. So he sends me a list of everything that I need. This is what, what's going to be needed if you're going to hunt on the property. And I'm real excited, but I've procrastinated. I've waited till the last minute. So I say, Liz, I got to run to the grocery store real quick. And she says, well, I'll go with you because we have some things we need to pick up for the kids. Okay. And so she has her list, diapers, baby food, things that are important. <laughs> you know, and we get in there and all of a sudden over the intercom, he tell the, they tell us the store's closing in five minutes. And all of a sudden there's this sense of urgency. I got to get all this stuff because I've got to be up in a, in a tree stand by 5 a.m. And so I tell Liz, look, your list is going to have to wait. We need to split up. I need you to go get this stuff. Now, this is a true story. She says, well, okay, I'll do this for you because I know how important it is. She says, what do you need me to grab? I gave her the list. The last thing on the list that she needed to get was buck urine. And so <laughs> she stops and she looks at me and she says, what? I said, Liz, I don't have time to explain this. Just go get the buck urine. She goes, what are you talking about, Justin? They don't sell buck urine at grocery stores. I, go into the outdoor section. They're going to have it. She says, this is not something they sell. I said, well, it's not going to be found in dairy, Liz. Okay. <laughs> you got to go to the outdoor section. She's still looking at me. I said, we're wasting time. So she goes and she gets it. I'm rushing. I'm grabbing everything. We meet in the car. She gives me the bag. She says, I got everything you got or told me to get. I look at it. And she got me predator urine. I said, Liz, I'm not hunting coyotes. I'm hunting bucks. And she says, Justin, that was the weirdest experience I've ever had, going and buying any kind of urine in any store. I'm an incredible wife. You should just stop and thank God for me right now. Priorities, a sense of urgency. The next morning, she did get the diapers and the baby food. All was well. But... Have you ever, that's what Peter's talking about here, the sense of urgency, the sense of priority. Because, And I know what some of you are thinking immediately right now. You're thinking, well, this was written almost 2,000 years ago. How could Peter have thought Jesus' return was imminent? We're still 2,000 years and we're still waiting. Well, many people have, have taken verses like this one to say that Peter and Paul and others, they were, they were wrong. They predicted that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime and they were wrong. 
They say, see, the apostles were wrong. Jesus didn't come back, and he's not coming back. But listen and listen very carefully. Peter doesn't say he's coming back in his lifetime. He doesn't say that in the text. He just tells them to live like Jesus is coming back because he doesn't know when Jesus is coming back, and neither do we. And it could be at any minute, and it's near. The last days, it's technically a phrase in the New Testament that refers to the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, and that all of human history, that is the last part of human history, between the first and the second coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the end in times. So Christians at this time expected Jesus to return at any moment. They did. But the fact that, they, that he didn't return in their lifetime doesn't contradict Jesus' promise that he's coming back. We're living in the last days, and because of that, we should be living And every generation should be living in the anticipation and the expectation that the Lord could come back at any moment. I grew up in a church that talked about the return of Jesus a lot. I'm thankful for the Assemblies of God. (laughs) Every week or so, probably. I remember the story that was always told in Sunday school. It was always told in Royal Rangers. It was always told in kids' church, and my youth pastor preached it. They would always tell this story about the little boy who missed the rapture. It would scare me to death. I had nightmares that I missed the rapture, and everyone else in my family made it. You remember all the Left Behind books? We don't preach about it often as we used to, and it's easy to make fun of some of the things we did to remind people about the second coming. I'm not sure why we've gotten away from preaching the second coming. Maybe maybe we're afraid of looking like fundamentalists with all these people who have come out and made crazy predictions and acted nuts. Maybe we're wanting to distance ourselves from those people. I'm not sure. Maybe we care more about crowds than we care about preaching the truth. I'm not sure why churches have gotten away from preaching about the second coming of Jesus. But the truth is this. There are eight, 318 references to Jesus' second coming in the New Testament. Did you hear me? 318 references concerning the second coming of Jesus. That's roughly one out of every 13 verses that mentions it. And nearly every moral command in the New Testament is tied to the second coming. It's not something we should be afraid to preach. It's essential to our faith. If we don't live to see the return of Christ, that means we will die. So if we don't live to see it, it just means we're going to die first. We're only allotted a certain amount of time. We have one life to live, and it goes by so quick. Before you know it, you're old. I've heard the story of a little boy that said, uh, Hey, Grandpa, were you on the ark? Grandpa said, Of course I wasn't on the ark. The little boy still couldn't get it, so he said, So then why didn't you drown? Surely, Grandpa, you're that old, you know. How did you survive the flood? Here's here's a truth bomb for you today. We won't live forever. We will all face death if Christ doesn't return. So whether you have only one day left here on earth or another hundred years, the big question is how are you living your life? How should you live this life that you've been given? Peter lays out different habits to cultivate in the believer's life while, while they wait for the return of Christ. And the first thing is this. It's found in verse 7. First habit is a habit of prayer. Let me preach to you for a minute. A habit of prayer. Look with me. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. That's the, 
That's the core of Peter's message right here. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, I want to be crystal clear here. The end of all things means it's near. It's coming. He didn't say the end of all things is here. He said it's at hand. It's moving. God's consummation toward the end is at hand. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, think about this. This is a message that's really close to Peter's heart because he's preaching from experience here. (laughs) Don't forget the guy who's writing this letter. These are the same words Jesus spoke to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said this to Peter, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. You remember that? You remember what happens? Jesus goes to pray, and when he comes back, he, he finds Peter praying? No. Peter's not praying. Instead of praying, Peter is sleeping. He's taking a nap. And Jesus said to Peter, and I want you to know the text is very specific. It's addressed to Peter. Jesus addresses Peter. He says, could you not watch with me one hour? So he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here Peter is preaching from his own experience. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-control, we all know what that means, right? There are two Proverbs that explain the difference of not having self-control versus having the value or having self-control. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, we are told this, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. But in Proverbs 16, 32, we learn it is better to be patient than powerful. It is better to win control over yourself than over whole cities. Wow. Some people mistake self-control with patience, but you need to understand this. They're very different. Self-control allows you to keep your mind focused on God while avoiding temptations of your desires. So there are all kinds of worldly desires, worldly temptations, and they can be strong. But our spiritual self-control can be stronger with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. I've heard all kinds of excuses my whole life for why people don't practice self-control. I'm just a man. It's natural. No, practice self-control. It's taught all throughout the Bible. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be self-controlled. Okay? Sometimes our biggest spiritual enemy is ourself. But you need to know this. God can help us. We can increasingly conquer our temptations and learn to embrace the fruit of self-control. All right? The more we study the Bible, the more we draw close to God, the more we're going to have the ability to demonstrate our own self-control. Now, the phrase, be sober-minded, it means to keep your mind steady and clear. So today, a, a phrase that would make more sense would be, keep your cool. You ever had to say that to your kids? Whoa, hey, keep your cool. It was a warning against crazy thinking. And it was a warning against crazy thinking about end times. Isn't that funny that Peter had to actually give a warning to the early church? Isn't that something that we struggle with today? (laughs) How many times I've seen very sincere people who get off balance because of a very unhealthy fascination with prophecy or a misinterpretation of prophecy. I know this is a tough one, but hear me out. 
Peter was warning against crazy thinking about prophecy that could lead to a very unbalanced life and a very unbalanced ministry. I have seen dates set for the return of Jesus, even though time and time again Jesus warns us not to do that. Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I have seen so many people become, in an unhealthy way, become fascinated with the book of Revelation, especially chapter 13. I've seen so many books come and go written by sincere people, and I'll tell you that, it's very sincere people, with all sorts of claims, only to be embarrassed when they never happen. Did you know that the opposite of sober-minded is frenzy madness? Okay? It would be the Greek word mania, which is coming to our English vocabulary via psychology. To be sober-minded is to be intellectually sound and not off on a tangent because of some new interpretation of Scripture. Sober-minded is a purposeful life and staying steady. It's not drifting. It's restraint and not impulsiveness. Sound judgment about doctrine, but also about the practical affairs of life. That's what Peter's saying here. Now, I... I I remember the year 2000, and the church went crazy. I remember people selling their homes, building bunkers, getting gold, burying gold, doing all kinds of crazy things because the end of the world is coming. Peter's saying, be sober-minded. Keep your head. God is on the throne. You don't have to lose it, okay? We know how the story ends. We know that God is in control. Be sober-minded. I think that's a good word for Pentecostals today with all the craziness going around, right? And here's the great part. Here's why he says this, for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. You need to do this for the sake of your prayers. As God's people, you've got a crucial role on the earth. I'm going to preach to you right now. Are you ready? Because this, this really preached to me when I, when I prepared this. You are the conduit of God's power. John Wesley said this, God does nothing on earth except an answer to prayer. Think about this. All God's power on earth is bound up in you. Now that's an overstatement, but it's getting at something the Bible does talk about. You, you, you. I'm talking to you today. You have a vital role to play in the kingdom of God. Something only you can do. New Heights Church, guess what? If we as God's people don't pray for our city to experience salvation, who will? I know we're not the only church here, but if if we God's people aren't praying for our city, who will? We need you to be sober-minded and alert, on guard, ready to pray. You know, we have a saying here at New Heights Church, prayer is not just what fuels the ministry, it is the ministry. It is the ministry. And we meet every single Wednesday from 12 to 1. We do it during lunch. We want, we keep inviting as many people that can come out. And I get questions, I've been asked, uh, why don't you guys emphasize more on prayer? Will you do more for prayer? I'm going to, can I be real transparent with you? Today, I would love to emphasize more on prayer. I would love to have more prayer nights. And my staff, we can do it. We pray throughout the week. We do. We, we designate certain days and times where we pray. We take prayer very serious. 
I would love and I will put out more nights of prayer. I want you guys to come out, though. I need you guys to show up and pray. Prayer is not just Sunday morning at the altar. It's really quiet. It's such a crucial part of the believer's life, and yet it's, it's typically the most neglected habit of a Christian's life, prayer. For whatever reason, prayer isn't huge on our priority list. I heard Pastor Skip Heidzik preach on this passage, and he shared these statistics. He says, the average Christian prays 45 seconds a day, and that's usually over a meal. Now, I know some Christians who definitely pray over a meal, or they'll pray when they're facing an emergency or a crisis, right? Listen to what Billy Graham said about prayer. He said, true prayer is a way of life, not just for use in case of emergency, Make it a habit, and when the need arises, you will be in practice. Wow. Back to Pastor Skip's survey. He says, another source said this, the average conservative Christian in a total year, the total time spent in a year praying, are you ready for this? Six hours. Six hours. Now, That same source goes on to describe other activities, hobbies and shopping mall expeditions in a year, 90 hours. Sporting activities is 100 hours. Vacationing is 120 hours. And are you, again, are you ready for this? A different source, six hours of prayer in a year. I did my own research and I figured this, 60 hours a year is spent in the shower. Two months of TV watching per year is the average and 30 minutes a day on Facebook. Six hours for prayer. Now listen, there are 365 days in a year, and if you just spent five minutes, just five minutes a day in prayer, I think, I think that's pretty doable. If you spent just five minutes a day in prayer, that would come out to 30 hours a year in prayer. Do you realize what five minutes of prayer can do? You can do a lot of things in five minutes. In five minutes, the earth orbits itself 6,000 times. In five minutes, an electrical current can go 6,000 times around the globe. In five minutes, a ray of light can travel 55.9 million miles. You would look at that and say, wow, that's amazing. That's so incredible. Guess what? In five minutes, it's possible for you to go to every single continent on the world and pray for missionaries who are there to preach the gospel to people who have never heard it. In five minutes, you can go past the sun, the moon, and the stars into the very presence of God. We don't get what prayer can do. Why don't we pray more than we do? Why is praying not a priority to God's people? Peter's telling us that as we get older and more mature in our faith, our prayer life should be getting stronger and stronger because it's the only thing, the only thing that will carry us through this life, and that is a solid prayer life. Jerry Vines said, prayer is the balance pole that will keep you steady on the tightrope of the world in which you and I live. Why do we not pray more? See, I could come up with all kinds of strategies for this church. I could come up with some incredible plan. It could even be a divine plan, but it's only going to happen if we as a church come together and pray. Prayer is what moves mountains. 
Prayer is what moves and shakes this world. Prayer is what needs to happen in order for us to go to new heights. I need the church to be committed to praying. And not just on a Sunday morning at the altar call. A life, a habit of prayer. That's the first thing Peter says. Verse 8 through 9, he's going to talk about a habit of love. Look with me, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, there are some implications that have to do with our relationship with God, and there are some implications that have to do with our spiritual family. The Bible talks a lot about what, how we need to interact with each other as a family, a community of believers. And just an FYI, this is an imperative here. What you see in verse 8 is an imperative. It's a command to love. It's not an option. You have to love. As the world gets more crazy with Christians and the hostility continues to grow, we need the love and the fellowship of believers. It's important that every believer is a part of a church. You've got to be a part of a church. You have to be a part of a community. This was God's design. God did not design us to do life alone. He designed us to do life as a spiritual community. It's God's plan. The church, as messed up as we can be, and you won't find a perfect church. You can search and search and search. You're not going to find it. As messed up as we are, we are God's plan, and we are God's design. He designed and he created the church. And we as believers are supposed to be a part of the church. It's important that you get involved in a church, and that doesn't mean just attending on Sunday. It's important here at New Heights Church that you get involved with a small group. I'm going to preach it here. Get involved in a small group. It's a great way to meet people. It's a great way to have fellowship. Peter's moving towards this idea of loving each other in the church. John 13, 35 says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the identification mark of a Christian. It's our birthmark. It identifies that we belong to Christ. Isn't that something? It's not a bumper sticker. It's not Facebook posts. It's not the clothing we wear. It's love. The priority of the church needs to be Christian love, love for one another. That's what Peter means when he says above all. In other words, make this a priority. Love each other. Love needs to be the first thing. 1 Corinthians 13.1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Man, I can give my body to be burned and feed the poor, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. I don't care if you're an incredible preacher. I don't care if you can get up in front of a crowd and put on one amazing show. I don't care if you're the most talented keyboardist or the most talented vocalist. I don't care what your gift is. If you have love, you are nothing. That's what marks a Christian. I'll hear people say, man, that preacher was anointed. I wonder what his love life is like. Well, love life for Christians. (laughs) Why do we record our services? (laughs) I wonder what what kind of love he has in his heart for his fellow believers. Moving on. First John 4, 8 says, (laughs) 
1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. How can we say we're born again if we don't have love for each other? My prayer for this church is that we grow in love for God and for each other. And I promise you, I make this promise. I told the board this when they interviewed me the day I got voted in. I made this promise. My promise and my commitment to you is that we will do everything we can as a church to ensure that you are hearing sound theological sermons. We want to ensure that you are theologically sound because what we believe will determine how we behave. But David Wilkerson says this, love is not only something you feel, it's something you do. So it's not just knowledge. You can know all about love. You've got to practice love in your life. And I am so tired, it breaks my heart to see all these Christians fighting and bickering with each other and hurting each other. I can't even get on Facebook anymore because all we do is go at each other. We must, the world must laugh at us because the one thing that Jesus said, the one thing he said that we'd be known for is the thing we're not known for. We're known for being the most divisive uh, people out there. I just, I can't, I don't understand it. The one command that Jesus said, this is what you're gonna be known for. We can't get it together. We don't make it a priority. We don't make it a habit of our life. We'd much rather get on Facebook and fight for our opinion and defend ourselves and defend our opinion than we would love each other. In fact, the word earnest literally means strenuously. It's a word that in ancient times described a horse at full gallop. That horse was stretching and straining its muscles. That's the word for earnest. It, it it also described an athlete who would stretch or strain their muscles to win the race, give it all that they had. How many of you guys love watching the Olympics? You watch that 100-meter dash, and at the very end of that race, you see, they'll put it in slow motion. These racers are just giving it all they had that very last minute, sometimes so much that they fall over once they cross the finish line. They are straining themselves to finish. That's the word that Peter's using. Do you do that to love people? Man, I'm preaching to myself too. Don't feel like I'm pointing a finger. This convicted me so much. I'm guilty of people in the church when they hurt me. Oh, I want to get even. I want to defend myself. I want to spend more energy. I want to earnestly defend myself. Peter's telling us to, to love like this. When we love people, we hold nothing back in our love for them. When we love people, do we love like we're trying to win an athletic competition? Because that takes time, that takes energy, but that's loving earnestly. Love will be strenuous. Dwight L. Moody said, if we have got the true love of God shed abroad in our hearts, we will show it in our lives. We will not have to go up and down the earth proclaiming it. We will show it in everything we say or do. When the world is watching your life, do they see love? And sometimes it's really easy to actually love the world. That's why I think what Jesus says is so difficult. It's easy to love a stranger. I could go downtown Cincinnati and show love to people I, I don't know that aren't really a part of my life, people in need. I can show love. I can, I can donate and give money. I can, I can go and hand out a meal. I can show love to people that I don't really know that well. It's really hard to show love to those that you know so well, though. It's just like any other family. Allie and Asher bicker back and forth, my two kids. They go back and forth like any brother and sister would, right? And in the church, man, we know each other. We're different. We have different personalities. We have different likes. We might even have different opinions. And God is saying that we need to love each other. 
Isn't that something? That's something. Are you, do you have a habit of love in your life? Does it, do you look at love like an athletic competition? Work hard at it. Be disciplined in it. Do you love even when it hurts? Then he goes on and says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a New Testament word that literally means loving the stranger. It's where we get our word hospital from. Think about a hospital. People who need taken care of come in and they get treatment. Now, the doctors and nurses, they may or may not know them, but nonetheless, they are hospitable to them. So that's what it means to love the stranger. And just a little historical context here. In the early church, they met in homes. They didn't have beautiful buildings like we have here. Okay, they met in homes, and the preachers and the evangelists of that time would travel from place to place, and they would need some kind of place to stay. There weren't holiday inns. There weren't Sheratons. So folks in the church would need to open up their homes to them and play host. They, would, they wouldn't have known them, but they were kind to them. That's hospitality. That's what it meant in its original context. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Show love to the stranger. Go out of your way to help them recover. The servants of God that are traveling through, bring them in, refresh them. That's what it meant when Peter wrote this. Again, here's the idea. We're radically generous with each other, and we don't complain about it. How are you being hospitable when it comes to the needs of those around you? Do you know that the book of Acts says that in the first church there were no poor among them? That's an, a crazy statement. There were no poor among them. When that happened, it says God added to their number daily, Acts 2, 47. If there were no poor among us, if we were meeting one another's needs, did you know that would be one of the most powerful, effective testimonies ever? Way more powerful than any sermon I could preach. The generosity and the love of the gospel on display is the greatest apologetic in the world. It is. It's just so funny. Our behavior, the way we treat each other, that's the most powerful sermon in the world. Moving on, verse 10 and 11, a habit of stewardship. Read with me, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies Here it is, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We each have a gift to serve the body of the church. Each has received means everyone. Everybody has a gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 says, But the same Lord... And there are varieties of activities, but in the same God who empowers them all and everyone, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You've got a gift. And if you don't know what yours is, join a small group. Join the growth track. We're going to help you discover it because you have a gift, and God wants you using it in the church. Everyone has it. So take it seriously. Take your gift serious. You are how God does his work here on earth. And understand this, that your gift might be different than somebody else's gift. We don't all have the same gifts. Romans 12, 6 through 8 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them in prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who uh, contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It doesn't matter what your gift is. It matters that you're using it for the kingdom of God. 
Now, it's easy sometimes for us to think our gifts are not, if they're not done up on stage, if you don't see the gift, if you don't see somebody up here on Sunday, um, or you don't see somebody up at the altar praying, if, if you don't see the gift, that it might not be as effective. That's not true. Do you know that most people sitting in the, in the chairs on Sunday, it's not because they're lazy. This is what I've discovered growing up in the church. Most people in the, because you, you always hear the statistic, you hear preachers say, hey, this is not a spectator sport. We need, we need you all involved. And we say it over and over and over. And pastors will sometimes complain, man, if I could just get 90% of the church to jump in ministry, we would be moving. It's just people are lazy. I don't think it's laziness. I really don't. I think they're confused. I think there's this misunderstanding. And sometimes I think our culture has created that. We've created superstars. The preachers and the musicians, they're superstars. And if you can't do that, then you don't have a gift. You don't have anything to give. The truth is, church, that everything you see up on the stage on Sunday is only done because we have an incredible team of volunteers that come in every single Sunday and work their work so hard to make this Sunday service work. And you don't ever see, man, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you don't ever see their gift. They'll never be acknowledged and recognized. They're in the back. Nobody knows what they're doing, but they're crucial to what we do on a Sunday morning. And I got to be honest, if the church is really doing our job, the best ministry is not going to be here on Sunday. It's going to happen outside of these doors throughout the week. That's what we're called to do as a church, equip you guys to go do the work. It doesn't matter if you're not up here on stage. You've got a gift to give, and you're supposed to be using it. The reason, too, the reason we use our gifts or we share our gifts with other people is to glorify God. Not ourselves. Not ourselves. We don't, we don't use our gifts so somebody can say, hey, good job. Man, you are amazing. What an incredible, phenomenal preacher you are. It's not why we use our gifts. Look at what Peter says in verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the goal of New Heights Church. This is all about Jesus. He deserves the glory. He deserves the credit. And we want to build a movement of people that are moving in that direction that want to point people to Jesus. Look at how amazing and awesome Jesus is. Think about this. If you're not using your gift for God, you might be impeding the display of God's glory by not getting involved, by not plugging in, by not sharing yourself with somebody else. Spiritual gifts are not toys to play with. They're not swords to fight with. They're tools to build with, and they are instruments to bless with. And you each have a gift, and you are supposed to be using it for the kingdom. You have received a spiritual gift. Every single person in New Heights Church of Fairfield, Ohio, has some spiritual gift that you can use for the good of others and for the glory of God. What is your gift? Because he says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
In those days, they had stewards and homes. The purpose of those stewards was to administrate the affairs of the household. The person who owned the household would put, in, put into the hand of the steward the properties, the facilities of the household, and it was the steward's responsibility to minister to them and to see that they were used properly. Here's what God is saying. I've given you certain things that you can do to be a blessing. Use those things to be a blessing to others. Use those things to be a blessing. There are too many people who are gifted, too many people who the Holy Spirit is wanting to use just sitting in a chair taking up space on a Sunday morning. And I wish that I could, I wish I was Superman and I could do everything. Let me be just real honest and transparent with you. I am not that good. <laughs> I'm just not. Not that good. And that doesn't make me, I'm not insecure I'm not looking for pats on the back. Man, I serve the most incredible, powerful God, and I am 100% confident that he has called me to this church. With all my weaknesses and all my flaws, I have never doubted once that God has called me to lead this church into this new season. I am very aware where my power and my strength comes from. It has nothing to do with me. It's the God I serve, and it's the God who called me. But I'm no dummy. I understand that in order for a church to go to the, the next level, to a new season, the, what God is calling them to do, I need participation because you guys are the ones that are going to do it. You guys are the ones that are going to do it. You guys have a gift that God has given you that he wants you to use for the kingdom of God. We do not do small groups just so that we can say we've done small groups. It's not enough just to know God, find freedom. We want you to discover your purpose and make a difference in this world. That is why we exist as a church. That's it. That's why we exist as a church. The word varied means many colored. What he's saying is that God gives us these grace gifts, these spiritual gifts, and as we use them, if every member does what God's gifted them to do in the church, then the church becomes this beautiful rainbow. Rainbow is biblical. It's biblical. A multicolored rainbow of the grace of God. In verse 11, Peter breaks down some of these gifts. First one who lists is those who speak oracles of God. Now, I take what I do very serious every Sunday, preaching the oracles of God every week. I don't take it lightly. I take it very serious. I know how serious it is. But it's not just preachers behind a pulpit on Sunday says whoever. That implies you. Why? Because you speak to people. This is why small groups and relationships are important, teaching and encouraging one another. You speak the oracles of God to each other. You know what New Heights Church needs more of? People speaking the words of God to each other. Preachers are not the only ones. We need more people to step up and lead a small group. We need more people to volunteer to help in youth and to help in kids' ministry. We need more people to say, I'm willing to volunteer in the nursery, and I'm going to speak the oracles of God into these young kids. We need more people who are going to say, sign me up. I'm ready to do this. You speak the oracles of God, not just the preacher on Sunday. You speak the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God, by the strength that God supplies. Some of you, some of you have the gift of serving. Take it serious. Jesus is going to do it through you. Remember how Jesus washed their feet? Wonder what, what that communicated to them. I'll tell you what it communicated to them. They were loved. 
And Jesus was serving and he touched them. That's what happens when you serve. You communicate Jesus' love and through it, Jesus touches them. Think about that. That's amazing. It's amazing to be used by God. That God supplies. In those days, the phrase God supplies was used of a man who would underwrite the expense of the city chorus. So Cincinnati has a symphony and a theater. And they have patrons that help make it happen with financial support. They support. They help supply. What, what Peter's saying is that God is going to give you the spiritual strength to use what he has gifted you to do for the good of other people. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's what it's about. Him. Shannon Alder says this, the greatest lesson you might ever learn in this life is this, it's not about you. It's not about you. Man, I watched my dad, the most gifted preacher I have ever witnessed in my life. What an incredible communicator he was. And at 40 years old, he's diagnosed with a brain tumor and the first thing he loses was his ability to preach his ability to teach. It was the hardest thing to watch this guy that was given workshops at general councils and district councils, and now he can't use his one gift for the kingdom. But my dad refused to believe that God couldn't use his other gifts, and so he decided he was gonna be a servant. And so he lost his ability to communicate and teach, but we found a job for him at Resource Development Ministry Center, which was in Springfield, Missouri, and all he did was put together books for missionaries. That's what he did, put the binding on. And I remember one day telling my dad, come, you don't need to be here. They don't need you to do this. Anybody can do this. Come and spend time with your son tonight. Man, let's go hang out. You don't need to go in. And he kept telling me, no, Justin, I refuse. This is my gift and I'm gonna give it. I refuse, I can serve. And I pray over every single book. He'd take his anointing oil and he would put it on every single book that he he made. He'd pray for that missionary. God, anoint that missionary to go out and do his work. Well, my dad, my dad died in 2006. He passed away. The last 10 years of his life, he put binding on a book. That's what he did. And I remember when my wife and I were appointed as Assemblies of God missionaries, we, we just had got approved. They said, go out and pick some curriculum. You're going to be in India working with some of the most unreached. Um, and Liz said, hey, let's use the curriculum my dad wrote in El Salvador. This is incredible. We can get it translated, and we can do something powerful with it. So that's what we did. We're flying on an airplane back from Springfield, Missouri to Phoenix, Arizona. And we're looking at this curriculum. And Liz knew that my dad had worked for Resource Development Ministries. And I'll never forget, because she said, hey, hey, was when did your dad work? Because we made this. She told me the year. And I said, I think he was at Resource Development. We flipped to the front of the book. And sure enough, there was a little anointing oil with a fingerprint. My dad had prayed over the very book that his own son and daughter-in-law would take to India. And I want you to know the most powerful moment of that because I couldn't get my dad. I tried so hard to get him to leave over and over and over. See, I didn't get it. I didn't get that everybody had a gift and it had nothing to do with the person, but everything to do with the Holy Spirit. I didn't understand that as a 22 year old. That's why I tried to get my dad to quit and go out with me to the, the zoo or Bass Pro, wherever it was, I was trying to get him to come with me. And he finally slammed his book down. He said, son, I am not leaving. You don't get it. This is my gift. I can't preach anymore. I can't teach anymore. I can't do the things that I used to do, but I can do this. And the reason I was so mad with him, because that day he had put the cover on backwards and some intern had come in and yelled at him, made him feel real stupid. 
And the human part of me was so mad and angry. Do you know who this is you're talking to? He was a church planner. He was a Bible college professor. He preached in front of crowds. Do you know who you're talking to? And it made me mad when that intern walked out. I said, Dad, you don't have to take this. Let's go. I'm not going to sit back and watch you go through this. Let's go. And I'll never forget my dad. He kept grabbing that bag from me. He wouldn't leave. Till where finally I said, and I regret it to this day, but I said, Dad, don't you get it? They're making fun of you. You don't have to do this. You don't have to put yourself through this. Come with me, please. Come with me. He said, Justin, no, you don't get it. I can't preach. I can't teach. Nobody's calling me anymore and asking me to do missions conventions. But this is my gift. And I refuse to do nothing for the kingdom of God. And you can do two things. You can leave, but I know I raised you better. Or you can stay with me, get your anointing oil, help me put these books together and pray over them. The most powerful day that I've ever had in my dad's ministry was long after he had passed away. And I was in El Salvador at a convent, some kind of ministry retreat. And my father-in-law wanted to show me the power of when a gift is used for the kingdom. And he reached out, grabbed that book, said, if your life has ever been touched by this book, I want you to come forward. I don't want you to just come forward if you used it. If your life has been touched and your ministry has been blessed from this book, I want you to come forward. Well, I tried to count too many to count. After hundred people came up to the altar, I stopped counting. And I'll never forget when my father-in-law whispered in my ear, do you see the fruit of someone who refused to give up their gift for the kingdom. It is not about you, it is about him. He can take whatever it is that you have and he can use it. And here's what he's asking you to do. You've all been given a connect card. We do this every week, this is spiritual. Because I'm gonna have them sing. I know I went a little long today, I'm sorry for that. I'm gonna dismiss you right after this, but our worship team's gonna stay up and pray and these altars are gonna be open. These altars are going to be open. But if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, this is a God moment because we need you. We need you in our small groups. We need you to lead small groups. We need you to help in the youth ministry. We need you to help in the kids ministry. We need you to sign up and pour into the kids in the nursery right now. We need you. You are needed. You are a vital part of us moving forward and fulfilling the mission of God. You have a gift and you need to be using it. You're going to just sign up. I'm going to sign a growth track. I'm going to sign up for a small group today. You can even make your own box and check it. I want to help with the youth. I'm going to show up on Wednesday right here at 12, and I'm going to pray with you for one hour. I'm going to pray that God moves in my city, in my workplace, with my friends. And we're going to close today in prayer. And again, you are dismissed. If you've got to go, as soon as I say amen, you are dismissed. Thank you for being with us. But our worship team is going to stay up here and they're going to keep playing. These altars are going to be open if you want to pray. If the Holy Spirit is doing something in your heart right now, I want to encourage you, do not miss the moment. If I've got staff or anybody who works for the church or if I've got board members or elders who are willing to come up and pray, I want to invite you right now. Father God, we love you. We worship you and praise you. We know you are doing something, not just in our hearts and our lives, but, but the heart of this community. You have a desire to see Fairfield, to see Westchester, to see Sharonville, to see all of these areas, Springdale. You have a desire to see them come to you. And we are your conduits of power. It's gonna start through our prayer. It's called, we lift up our church to you. We lift up our city to you. We lift up our neighbors to you. God, we wanna see a move of the Holy Spirit. So would you please respond?
respond to our faith and begin to do a work in our hearts and our minds and our lives. I pray for surrender today, God, that we would stop saying the gift you've given me isn't enough, but that we would start recognizing that this is from you and it can do incredible things. Just like my dad said, I refuse to do nothing for the Lord. I pray that every single person who calls New Heights Church would make that their life motto. I refuse to do nothing for the kingdom. Holy Spirit, move in our presence right now and speak to our hearts. And I pray we would surrender in Jesus' name, amen.